So I began this morning uh, talking about hard problems, and I wanted to pick up where uh, I left off. Uh, I had one additional thought that I didn't uh, bring out this morning, and that is uh, there's a significant difference when talking about heart problems between uh, symptoms and the disease itself. You might be out on a walk or playing with your child and suddenly you have chest pains and the chest pains are real. You've just climbed a flight of stairs or something else like that and you find yourself out of breath suddenly. Not much exercise but still a considerable amount of discomfort and those are serious signs of something and actually the signs are often rather easy to take care of. Several years ago I had uh, some of these heart, physical heart problems and uh, I had two stents put in my uh, little heart uh, arteries and I had to go around for some months with this little tiny bottle of pills. Uh, They're called nitroglycerin pills. I was afraid to drop it because I didn't know what would happen then, but uh, these little tiny pills, and my doctor told me that if I have chest pains or something like that, I'm supposed to take one of those little pills, put it under my tongue, and everything very quickly would be all right and I'd feel better. But the thing is that nitroglycerin treats symptoms, but it did absolutely nothing to take care of any real problems that I might still have had. The only solution to the problem was to let the doctor go in my wrist with his little rotor-rooter thing, uh, go into my heart, and uh, take out the stuff that was uh, in my arteries and clogged up the efficient flow of blood to my heart. And so I think that one of the things that we have to be clear about is to beware of symptoms is one thing, but don't imagine that relief relief from symptoms is the same thing as solution to the problem. The disciples of Jesus had some heart problems. He said to them, let don't let your hearts be troubled. And then if you note uh, down further in the chapter in verse 27, Jesus adds to that uh, troubled, he talks about fear. And over in the 16th chapter, he'll come back to it again, and he will add sorrow. So don't let your hearts be troubled, don't fear, don't have sorrow. And in the light of what had happened, in the light of what was going to happen in the very next few hours with these men, their problems might have compounded with worry and anxiety, with uh, guilt, as remember they all fled from the presence of Jesus, and probably even uh, as you saw with uh, the guy named Malchus, no relation, uh, even frustration and anger at what was happening. What were the symptoms? Well, those were some of them. I'm sure you've uh, watched videos at some time of uh, the endless parade of funniest home videos. I like the one where 
these two people are sitting in some sort of an amusement uh, park uh, ride, and they're both clutching this thing, and they're both seem calm and relaxed and so forth, ready for this, whatever it is that they think is going to happen to go off. And all of a sudden, they push the trigger, and it's that bungee thing that goes up in the air. And the two pictures are the exact opposite. One is just absolutely exhilarated with joy and happy and laughing, and the other is cringing or just faints. The same experience, the same thing, both crying, one with delight and exhilaration, the other screaming or in rage or having somebody having put them in that situation. Oh, this is a good idea. Yeah, right. This is a good idea. Well, the spiritual problems of life reveal many, are revealed many times in similar ways. Sometimes there's the ability to be calm in the midst of storms of life. But for others, the symptoms of unresolved heart problems show themselves in cries, literal weeping, tears of anguish. Some people withdraw. You find this in the church when people are uh, in trouble. As a pastor, I've experienced this, that some people will withdraw, and three weeks later, uh, they'll come back to church, and the son will say, well, my mom was in the hospital for two week, two and a half weeks. And I say, why didn't somebody tell me? Well, we kind of wanted to keep it private. And so some people will do that, withdraw. Some people withdraw simply into self-pity or silent rage or some other kind of antisocial behavior, maybe, maybe guilt, maybe self-deprecation, uh, criticism, sometimes outbursts of anger, name-calling, blame-shifting, or just rebellion against all, any kind of counsel, any kind of restraint, any kind of authority, there's resistance to that. And when those things go away, but only for a short time, it means that the real problems that need to be addressed have not been addressed, but need to be. You know what we call that? We call it the Christian life. It's what we call it. Because we all go through it. The ups and downs of life. And that's why Jesus is addressing these disciples with these remedies for the heart problems. I talked about the first two this morning. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Verses 2 through 6. There's a home to go to that awaits us. It's introduced by Jesus, the solution. There, in light of Thomas's question, and Jesus makes this outstanding, astonishing statement that he's the way to the Father, the only way, the only truth, and the pure life. And so this evening, I just that's review. Uh, I know it's long, but uh, that's review. Uh, this evening, we come to the third remedy uh, that I see in the text, and so it's found in verses 7 through 11. So let me read those verses to you again. John 14, verse 7, down through verse 11. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. 
Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. I call this uh, remedy the vision. The vision. This time, another disciple named Philip interjects Jesus' discourse with a request. And a most crucial request it is. What is it? Lord, show us the Father. Now that seems kind of innocuous. And you might have to work through this a little bit more detail yourselves as you do your Bible study. But let me show it to you briefly. Beginning there in verse 7. No less than five times, Jesus draws our attention to this very, very profound truth and idea. In these verses, uh, you see the verbs, instead of believe, you see the verbs seeing, you see the verbs knowing, and seeing and knowing are very similar and are connected with that other verb that we saw this morning, and that is believing. Jesus here claims in himself, in his being, in his words, in his work, to be unified with the Father. Now, it's not the first reference that we have to this, but here you have one of the deepest thoughts that was ever thought by human minds, a mystery that goes above and beyond even the universe in which we live. You can't see it. You can't examine it. You can't understand it. You can't even fully appreciate it. But when you believe it, when you see it and know it in a biblical way, the Father the Son, and in the next chapter, the Holy Spirit, one eternal God, the same in substance, equal in essence, and in power and glory. When you appreciate this truth, even in the smallest amount of understanding, it is so powerful, and it transforms life. It's the vision of this truth, this reality, that truly treats the heart problems and deals with the several symptoms that I've already talked about. First of all, when it comes down to this, we begin to understand that this man, Jesus, who lived on the earth, really lived in the first century, was no mere man like us. He was 
He is very God of very God. Where does that come from? Anybody? Very God of very God. Nicene Creed. Okay, it's all right to talk in church. I said that to somebody today. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, that was a free advertisement. He's very God of very God. Begotten, not created. Of one substance with the Father. Now, this thought, you have to go back to the first remedy. You believe in God. You must also believe in Christ. To believe is to love. It's to obey. It's to serve. It's to rely upon for every key issue of life. Every key issue of life. And so we go back to the heart problem reflected in the request of Philip. Show us the Father. Because that request strikes at the very center of the great quest of all mankind. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, since the historic fall of Adam and Eve into, into a condition of sin, there is nothing higher. There is no experience that is desired beyond and above this one, that is to see God in all of his glory. Man was made for that originally, wasn't he? After the creation in the garden, Adam and Eve saw God. Now, I don't know how that worked. That's for smarter people than I am. But in Eden, it says that they walked and they talked personally with God. And then, of course, came the rebellion. And when the rebellion came, they were removed from that. That was part of and the initial portion of the death that they experienced because of their sin. Not only out of the garden, but they were removed from the presence and the vision and the conversations of the Creator Himself. And so the curtain was fixed and the chasm of separation was established between the perfect God and the sinful man. And since that day in history, what, has it, what is it that men have longed for? They have longed for the sight of God. Men know, with Philip, here in John 14, that if we could just see God, we could just see God, I know that I would never be the same again. Remember Moses? He experienced this. He didn't even get to see all of God, just the hinder parts of God. And yet when he came down from the mountain, the people couldn't even look at Moses because he shone so brightly. Remember Isaiah? He only saw a vision of the glory of God and his demeanor and his whole life was forever changed because he had been in the presence of God. What Philip sought is what all men seek. A complete fulfillment in this life that brings with it the peace and the joy, the contentment, the comfort, the purpose, the motivation to keep on living. 
All men? You say, all men seek that? Yep. Because all men are estranged from God. By nature. Fleeing from God. But what do they seek? They seek those very things that I mentioned a minute ago. Freedom. Peace. Comfort. Purpose. Joy. Motivation. That's what all of this stuff is about that we're experiencing in our culture. Independence. I want freedom to do and be joyful in what I want to do. The religions of the world seek it. But so do the atheists. So do the agnostics. People want pleasure because we were created for pleasure. Right? Who said it this morning in Sunday school? What is your chief end? It's okay to talk in church. My chief end is to and enjoy Him forever. We're created to not just glorify God, but to enjoy, to have pleasure in life and in eternity in and with God. And so people seek pleasure because what? Well, pleasure is some relief from the heart problems I talked about earlier. Fear, fear, anger, guilt, worry. And so often as people, fallen people, we will, per, we will pursue something, sometimes anything, that offers relief. Relief. Most, most naturally in some self-serving way, fleeing from God, people are ensnared with choices that are always destructive, ultimately. They're always empty. They're always contrary to the very thing that they want most desperately. I lived in Syracuse, New York for several years. And in the winters, uh, you know, Syracuse is known for more or less one thing, snow, right? And I like skiing because it gives exactly this kind of pleasure. You see, if you're on the top of an icy mountain and you put two very slippery boards and clamp them to your feet and then you point those boys downhill, there's only one thing that you can think about. And that is skiing. Because if you think about anything else, they bring you down in a bag. Now, skiing is one of those artificial pleasures. If I'm not careful, I can easily imagine that I'm on the mountain. Or when I'm on the mountain, that my heart problems don't exist. Skiing is a legitimate earthly pleasure but it never dealt with the needs of my heart I don't know what your skiing is work pills eating not eating video games reading 
could list a thousand things that we can get into in seeking the very pleasure for which we were created. But does fun ever, does fun ever give the hope, the joy, the peace in life that all people crave? Will it deliver at the time of death? Fun will never do that. Pleasure will never do that. And so people find themselves, or maybe don't find themselves, as Paul describes them in Ephesians 2, having no hope and without God in the world. Isn't it rather ironic that people find themselves in God's world, and yet they're without God in that world? But they're not without gods. We're not, we're people that cannot live without a God. Sin separated us from the Master from the Creator, from the Sovereign, but anxiously we proceed to search for something that cannot be found in this world. And so the pursuit of all these things comes to us. And sometimes it's without any reference to religious things at all. But sometimes people do this with religious trappings. The problem is that we can find people who have found a God, a God of their own making, of their own creation, who is subject to them, and they seek to find peace there. C.S. Lewis gives an illustration in one of his books, one of his essays, he talks about God in the dock. Uh, some of you have, may have seen a, a British uh, film with a legal theme to it, and in the British courtroom, the defendant, the person who's being charged, is put in a box in the middle of the courtroom, and that's called the dock. And in the dock, that question, that person who stands accused is uh, examined and is uh, uh, cross-examined, if you will. In this picture, of Lewis's God is put in the panel like a witness before a Senate hearing. There's God, and he's to be questioned, and he's to be accused. I think the term is vetted. We vet God. Another writer indicates that God has been nearly domesticated in his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his truth has been abandoned for something that I can consider and I can lay hold of. And sadly, it happened a long time ago in the cults and the, and the heathen religions of the world, but then followed what we call the liberal churches, and I won't go into that, but even now, it's even among evangelicals, the tame God, the tame God who does not know, doesn't know the future, much less does he have any, is there any notion of his providence controlling, governing, protecting all of his people and all of their actions. They don't know of his sovereignty. He's a God who can't act apart from our choices. What a pitiful God that is. Why? Well, you see, God's in the dock. He can't rule his creation completely. If he did, in the minds of most people nowadays, 
There'd be no pain. There'd be no hurricanes. There'd be no drought in Texas. There'd be no children dying. There'd be no war in Europe. There'd be no famine in Africa, no loneliness, no unsaved loved ones, no stress at all. God's been put in front of the panel of our own questioning. You think it's fair? People would say to God that my marriage is falling apart. You think it's good? Would you please explain to us, God, on what basis you would allow my daughter to go so far into sinful living? What about this whole situation with my job and my finances? Explain that. And since the answers of those hundreds of questions are not forthcoming with perfect satisfaction to my little old bitty mind, God is found accused. Those people are called open theists. To them, God seems helpless. Because he does not and he cannot control any better than he has in the past, nor will he in the present. Well, you know, I'm sorry to get along, get sidetracked that way, but I'm not an open theist. Are you an open theist? You're supposed to say no. Are you an open theist? No. Exactly. It's a heart problem. But then, John 14, we read it, we meditate on it, we think about it. And this clear vision comes along. Jesus and God, his Father and my Father are united. They're one God. And as we then begin to see God in all his seriousness, in all his power, in his holiness, in his glory, his transcendence, not just theologically and theoretically, but in real ways in which he touches us and touches our lives in the church. We come to church. Why do we come to church? We come to church to praise Him. We come to church to hear sermons. We go to Bible studies. We have fellowship. Fellowship in the church. And we see the glory of God in that place. And the marvel of the fact that the holy God of heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit, has loved rebellious creatures, rebels like me and you, and has made every believer clean by the grace of Jesus Christ. That brings me into his presence, into the fullness of life in him. And in that fullness, we see the Father, just as Jesus said to Philip. In the church, in our service and in our ministry. The glory of God is the thing that encourages us to put our energy, our focus, our concentration, to use our diaphragms when we sing, if you will, to use our resources to care for each other 
and for those outside the church. And so here's the remedy. The Father and the Son are one God. We dare not come into His presence with nonchalance in worship. Why should the minister have to direct you to offer a confession of your sin to God in worship? After we confess our faith, God has called us into his presence to confess our sins. Why? Because he's God and because he and Jesus are united and Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, God can forgive us. How could we not then burst forth into song? Jesus, I'm resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. And then, having seen him in his splendor, in his glory and corporate worship, should we not know that our Father and our Savior are the cure for our heart problems and gradually, in his grace, see the symptoms of those problems begin to diminish and to fade? The Lord Jesus, on this most troubling nights in all of human history, instructed his disciples. He instructed those eleven. He instructs us tonight not to let our hearts be troubled, afraid, sorrowful. For he is the only way to the Father, the living God. But not just that. He is the living God. Worthy of all honor and glory and power and riches and strength. You see, there is then a way to see God. John began began his gospel with these terrible words, no one has seen God. But then he immediately comforts us with the fact, but God the only Son has made him known. God himself became man. And as our Redeemer, so he was and so he continues to be. God and man in two distinct persons, one person forever. He alone can show us the Father. We look to him. We are in him, united to him by his grace, by faith, by repentance, by showing forth in continual obedience to his covenant. We find the relief the treatment to our troubled hearts. And so, tonight, let me just send you home. May God give us His grace to submit our hearts to Him in such faith, in honest and complete acknowledgement of our sinful thoughts and words and attitudes like we did earlier in the service, repenting of that, but also trusting in the resurrection power that overcomes the symptoms as he treats our hearts with the only remedy that will bring us to see the Father. Next week, Lord willing, Jesus will take us a couple of steps further. Uh, These next verses are really powerful and exciting as you see what Jesus has to say to us. Let's look forward to that and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. 
We thank you that it teaches us, it touches us. Uh, We have that question, uh, maybe not consciously, maybe we've never expressed it with our voices. Show us, God. Lord, you are our Redeemer. You are our Creator. You are the one who sustains our lives. And you are the one that in Christ, being in Christ, you give us everything that we need for life and godliness through the Lord Jesus Christ. Enable us to be ministered to by these words and to meditate on them. Even as we go into the following week, we pray that you would uh, use these thoughts to encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.